Welcome to the Navigating Hollywood podcast. My name is Alan Wolf, and I'm a filmmaker, author, and game creator. And speaking of being an author, my new book, based on my upcoming movie, The Sound of Violet, will be coming out on September 21st. You can pre-order it now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you get books. I'll put some links for that in the show notes. Today, we're joined by Darren Mormon, the producer of the Netflix movie Blue Miracle. He has also produced Run the Race, Indivisible, Same Kind of Different as Me, and the TV show Mark Hamill's Pop Culture Quest. And that's not even the whole list. Welcome, Darren. Uh, thanks, Alan. Great to be with you today. Great to have you. You know, I first met Darren around the time that he produced his first film, All Over Again, which I always thought it should be called the magic bat. That was a missed opportunity, in my <laughs> <It> opinion. <was. laughs> now, Darren and I went to the Sundance Film Festival together years ago, and we were nearly killed. Do you remember this, Darren? Yes. <laughs> we were staying with some friends of mine in Salt Lake City, which is about an hour away from where the festival is happening. They said we could borrow their car while we were at the festival, which was the perfect price for us, free. But one night... We didn't have the car, so we hitchhiked back to Salt Lake. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you remember this? We were in the back seat of a car driven by a man that we didn't know, and he suddenly exited the highway. Yes. We asked him where he was going, and he said he needed to pick up a friend. We kind of looked at each other, like, <laughs> what's, what's happening? It was very dark. We were up in the mountains in the middle of nowhere, and, you know, I think we both wondered if something terrible was going to happen. He picked up his friend, and then he drove us back to Salt Lake in total silence. <laughs> it, was, it was very strange, but we survived, but barely. We, we barely we, survived. We, we are still here. Do, do not do that in today's world. We, we do not recommend that. We do not recommend that. Well, congratulations on all that has happened in your life since our near-death experience at Sundance. Yes. Now, before we talk about Blue Miracle, which is a great movie, I loved it, I'd like to talk about a film that felt like a significant career moment for you. The movie, The Same Kind of Different as Me. You read the book, which is a New York Times bestselling novel. You fell in love with it, and then it took 10 years to bring it to life. Can you describe that process? You know, Same Kind of Different as Me is the first book that I read that really inspired me it felt like one of those just gritty, true stories that the world would would love to see. And the book just so moved me, which, of course, took me on that crazy, windy journey of, of making the film. And it felt like a significant step. I mean, you had your largest budget at that point. You were working with world-class actors like Renee Zellweger, Greg Kinnear, Jermon Hanzo and John Voigt. Were there moments during the production where it just felt like a dream come true for you? Yeah. And I think I think if I if I could back up uh, just to, before we get to set, I think it's important that, that you sort of know a bit of that journey. Uh, because I had spent, you obviously knew me early in my career. I had produced one low-budget film uh, when we first had connected. And I would say I was in Hollywood 10, 12 years, and then w mainly working and producing other people's things, working at MGM, uh, all of which are 
great for learning, but not necessarily what drives me and my own passion. And I was prompted to write a manifesto. So I had my little Jerry Maguire moment. Uh, (laughs) Roughly about, I'd say it's about eight years ago at this point. And I just went on this journey of going, hey, why, why am I here? As Liam Neeson said in Taken, I have a certain set of skills, but I didn't know what I was supposed to do with them at that moment. So I wrote this manifesto and and really began to explore who I was as a filmmaker. And, and out of it was birthed my company, Reserve Entertainment. And at the top of the manifesto, as far as stories that I felt like that I really wanted to tell, was same kind of different as me. Now, I did not have mm-hmm. the rights to the book at that time, although I had pursued it and those kind of things. At that moment, Disney actually had the rights to it. So I write this manifesto and decide, okay, this is what I'm going to do, which meant if I'm going to do this, I'm going to say no to this. And so I ended up passing on two paid producer opportunities and went 18 months without a paycheck. Whoa. And were you married at that point? Oh, yeah. Married, two kids. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Was there a moment where your wife said, I'm not so sure about this? Uh, you mean a moment every day? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think every filmmaker has that. Am I crazy or is this really what I'm supposed to do? And you have to you have to wrestle with that. Most of the time we're crazy. It worked out and I was able to to pull the project together and, and when we get to set, yes, it was amazing. I've always been a huge Greg Kinnear fan. Who doesn't love Renee Zellweger, right? Hmm. One of my favorite stories. I was actually sitting in this office. We were up here in the mountains with Krista's family. And the CAA agent called me. And this was early in the casting process and said, hey, Jaiman Hansu would like to meet with you. So I pull up his picture and his picture's up on my computer. And my wife, through the double glass doors, looks in sees this picture, pops in while I'm on the speakerphone with CA agent. And she's like, oh my goodness, he's my favorite actor ever. Uh, and, and I'm trying to find the mute button. You're trying to play it cool too. Like, oh, yeah, well, maybe it's a possibility. I lost all <laughs> leverage at that moment oh, uh, in, in the negotiating deal. <laughs> but I ended up meeting with Jaiman and, and he shared the fact that he himself was homeless in France for a year and, mm. and he just, uh, with tears in his eyes, he's like, I was born to do this role. And I'm there, I am looking across from this big, huge, you know, good looking man who's saying, I was born to do this role. I'm like, yep, you were. Let's go do this. So it was really a dream come true. And it really was a, a project that has, I think, elevated my career a bit and opened doors to do other things. And you put so much work into that. And I know that was a dream of yours for a long time. And after it came out, the majority of the critics didn't give it good reviews. It has a 40% score on Rotten Tomatoes. Wikipedia calls it a box office bomb. What was it like dealing with that kind of reception? As a filmmaker, we make movies that we believe we're supposed to make. And we can't control how the audience responds, or we specifically can't control how the critics respond. But I will say that I still hear today from people all over the world about the impact that that film has had on people. 
And just this week, literally heard from a friend of mine who said, hey, my father-in-law watched this film. He's never cried for one second in his life. And he literally cried through the whole film. And he pulled the whole family together and made everyone watch it. And he said, it's just been a, a just in the past month, it has literally changed this man's life. Well, here's what's interesting. I mean, well, when you look at Rotten Tomatoes, 40% from critics, but 86% positive reviews from the audience. And on Amazon, there are over 1,800 reviews, which have given it nearly five stars. <laughs> so there is just a huge divide between what the critics thought and what the audience thought. Why do you think there was such a difference between the two? I think the timing of this project you know, because of the sensitivities of it with racial reconciliation and, you know, the, what, what people would call white savior movies, I think the timing of it from a critic's perspective was poor. But yet the audience perspective, those that, that have given it great reviews, felt like the timing was perfect. It's a tricky time in the world to bring content out and, you know, but at the same time, as a filmmaker, you're just like, hey, this is what I'm supposed to make. And sometimes we can't control the timing of actually when it gets made. And Did that impact you at all after you saw the kind of reception that it got and that split reception? It has a huge impact. When you put together that big of a cast and a New York Times bestselling book, it certainly had an opportunity to do much bigger business, but it didn't. The good news is we finally got paid, and so uh, the kid the kids got to start eating again. <laughs> <laughs> and, and years later, the 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 impact continues. So that's why we do this. Hmm. Well, something that stands out to me about your films is the quality. You attract great actors to your projects, and your movies always have high production values. What helps you accomplish that? You know, I worked at the studio at MGM for a bit, so I understand how to pull off quality because um, I was, was able to have a front row seat to that. And, and that was hugely helpful for me coming out of sort of low budget indie films to have that studio quality. But I also was able to see the gratuitous waste of money on those projects, mm. the things that you just don't need to spend money on. And so that that is helpful. But one of the things uh, about my company, Reserve Entertainment, that I feel, I feel like I should share at this moment because you have a perfect question, is the name is inspired by Jesus' first miracle of turning water into wine. Hmm. And, and the guy running the wedding party goes, hang on, where did this reserve wine come from? And... And I've just just really thought through that. I'm like, wow, Jesus cared about the quality of the wine. And as a filmmaker, I care about the quality of the films I'm making. It's it's hugely important. Definitely starts with the script, the casting, and the cinematography, uh, all of it. My hope is that when people do experience a film that I make, like Blue Miracle, that they, yeah, they have that similar feeling of, wow, this is a great class of wine where did this where did this reserve wine come from and that that's 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 my dream behind every project almost everyone can appreciate a great glass of wine blue miracle your latest film stars dennis quaid and jimmy gonzalez can you tell us what the story is about it's a true story inspired by 
an event that took place in Cabo, Mexico in 2014, uh, where a hurricane had hit Cabo and these orphan boys down there were about to be thrown out on the street. And these guys got a chance to compete in the world's biggest fishing tournament, the Bisbee's Black and Blue. And these kids had never fished before. And the true story behind it is it cost $75,000 to enter the tournament. So it's an impossible scenario that a group of orphan kids would be able to fish in this tournament. Uh, and the prize is millions of dollars. The amazing true event is that they actually won this tournament in 2014 to save the orphanage, and they actually have gone on to build a sister orphanage. And so that's why I was so inspired to to make the film. It just it just felt like one of those things where it's just like this is a story I'm supposed to tell. Hmm. So, how did you first get involved with it? When I was producing the same kind of difference as me, Mary Parents, who was at Paramount at the time, now runs she runs Legendary. Her husband Javier Chapa. She just kept saying, hey, you're going to love my husband. And so we get back to L.A. and Javier and I end up playing golf and just talking about what what he's doing in the industry. And he's really focused on the Latino filmmaking aspect. And, hmm. and so we sort of said, hey, let's come up with this Latino feel, U.S. appeal type project that has a faith thread through it. And so we set out to go find a story. And so he and I found this story together and raised some development money, hired a writer. And a couple of years later, Blue Miracles uh, is, it, is in Netflix worldwide. It's that simple. Mm. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> a plus B equals C. I mean, yeah. you know, not much yeah. to it. It's an amazing timeline with the average feature film taking about seven years from start to finish. It sounds like this process went a lot faster than that. It was much shorter timeline. As a producer, you know, filming on water can be very costly and challenging. What was that like for you? <laughs> yeah, there, there are things that you just don't know until you do them. And filming on water is one of them. When you see the film, you'll see how much water we shot on. But we were eight days on a water tank in the Dominican Republic. And the things that you don't know, but you know, when you're thinking about a water tank, which is really an infinity pool to the ocean, but your camera can only look like this, straight mm. out at the ocean. And so to, in order to shoot your scenes, your boat has to turn with the sun uh, <laughs> and, and with every actor that's saying something. And so you're turning your boat because everything has to look out at the ocean. Because behind you is cameras and gear and all, all of that. Uh, mm. So there are literally 16 water people in wetsuits 12 hours a day in the water. And they anchor the boat down. And then every 20 minutes as the sun moves, they slide the boat. And so you have, mm. to, you have to do block shooting. One of the biggest surprises, because we've, we've done all the scouting back and forth. And you show up on day one. And you, you have this infinity pool that goes to the ocean. And it can't be a pool. It has to be moving water like it's the ocean. Hmm. And on day one of filming, we show up and there's zero wind. And it's mm. glass like you're, it's a swimming pool. You're like, <sighs> this doesn't look like the ocean. Uh. Um, it ended up being you know, a challenge, which included a lot of visual effects. Because I assume you don't want to turn fans on because that will just screw up the sound. That's correct. You do have these water machines that, that 
cause the rumble, but then it dies dies down. And so you're also relying on the wind to to always have motion. And mm. so uh, you the things you just can't plan for. So, uh, <laughs> right, right. And the people at the water tank, we show up in day one, like, we, we've never seen this before because it's, uh, we're on the ocean where it's always has wind come and it's just like, gosh. okay. So, <laughs> so I'm doing, I'm doing prayer walks around the water tank going, okay, God, you can, you can stop when now we need you to pick some up. <laughs> were there other challenges in making the film that stand out to you when i think about this film and the team that we had there there weren't a lot of challenges it was a phenomenal hmm. team hmm. wow the actors were amazing you know there's it's not like we got into the edit bay and like oh we got to cut around this character we didn't have that we had tremendous talent the scenery was beautiful we had perfect weather. What was it like working with Dennis Quaid? Dennis Quaid is incredible. I mean, period. He's just incredible. His response on the script when he when he read the script was, I had the same feeling when I got done reading The Rookie that I had when I got done reading this project. <laughs> and like, wow. That's, that's what you dream of as a storyteller. Hmm. We had been through intensive notes process on the script to get it right. But when he got it, he didn't have any notes at all, which is pretty staggering for an A-list actor. Most have lots of notes, but he had no notes. Mm. Loved the project. He really coached the kids too. He really elevated them. He is a great actor to work with. Mm. He's just, just a phenomenal guy. And what were your hopes for Blue Miracle? Was the plan for it to go to Netflix? No, you know, we made it for theatrical. And we we had actually tested it last March. We were early in the the edit process without our 650 visual effects shots. And we tested it in Texas with two audiences, a just a main family audience and then a Latino audience. And so two two theaters side by side, and the response was overwhelming. Best test scores I've gotten coming out of out of any film. And we really felt like we had a hit on our hands. And two weeks later, the world shut down. While we finished the film, everyone was like, we have to make a decision on what we're going to do. And we can't see when the theaters are going to really open back up. And so we, we pivoted and said, let's go to streamers and see what kind of deal we can get done. We really believe we had a blockbuster on our hands uh, from a theatrical perspective. And fortunately, with Netflix, you know, it, it sort of has the same feeling as a blockbuster because it's been tracking number two in the entire world on the Netflix wow. platform. Hmm. In a lot of countries, it's number one. And so it sort of has that same feeling of a blockbuster without being able to see box office numbers. Well, that's fantastic to hear the response that's been happening around the world. Darren, I noticed that your movies have a lot of father issues. Either the father is absent or is a bad father or the main character struggles with being a father or longs for a loving father. Do you personally resonate with those themes? Where is that coming from? 
I am a sucker for father-son stories. Of course, I have two boys. Something about it I just love. October Sky. You know, even this is not a father-son, but father-daughter. Taken with Liam Neeson. I think there's all kind of great sort of father stories. How to Train a Dragon was one of my favorite sort of viewing experiences with my two boys. I have a great father. He's still alive. Still very, very involved in our lives. What is your dad thought of the movies that you've made? Dad's not really a movie watcher. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that he does watch my movies. You know, my mom is the biggest fan ever. My dad sits down on the couch and, and falls asleep. Even during your movies? I hope not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, my, my parents are big fans uh, of the films I'm making. In Blue Miracle, Dennis Quaid's character says, one day my son will be able to hold up my trophies and say, my dad was special. And when I heard that, it reminded me of a time when I was watching the Tony Awards and an A-list major actor won the Tony. And in his speech, he said he knew he couldn't be there for his son for that past year because of the show that he was in. So he dedicated his Tony Award to his son. And I remember thinking, your son probably doesn't care about your <laughs> award or being with your award as much as he cares about being with you. you know, we both work in an industry that promises great rewards, wants to reward you for great success. How do you keep a healthy perspective when it comes to working to be successful while prioritizing your marriage and your family? I think it's one of the greatest challenges in the film industry. One of the things that I have always tried to do is I run my own company and I step into my home office, but I don't go to work until 8.45 and I you know, sort of clock out at, at 5.45 where I'm trying to get breakfast and, and some reading time with the boys and have dinner. And it's something I've tried to always do is make sure that I'm not taking work into the evenings and sacrificing family time. And what does that look like when you're shooting a movie and your family is with you? Challenging. Filming is five or six weeks and those days are, are much longer and that's when it's a full sacrifice. It's almost impossible. But I'll rush right home and at least try to get an hour with everybody before they go to bed. Also in Blue Miracle, Jimmy Gonzalez's character says, you've got to do what is right every single day and that's how you get ahead. Is that true for working in Hollywood? <laughs> I'm curious, as a producer in the work that you're doing, do you find that your integrity is often tested as well? For sure. You do have to treat your life like a business and you have to work it. Nothing will be given to me or to you. We have to every day get up and do the right things. And build those relationships and develop those right projects. And not all of them will get made. That is a real challenge. And to not compromise, when you talk about integrity, to not compromise and to do the wrong projects for a paycheck, that's probably where the biggest challenge is. I'm not in this business to chase money. I probably make more doing podcasts. We should talk about that. <laughs> or I'm doing something very wrong. <laughs> well, in the same kind of different as me, Jaman Hanzu's character says, 
God is in the business of turning trash into treasure. Has God done that in your life? Oh, absolutely. I didn't go to film school. For me to be able to make movies with A-list actors is a real treasure. That's God's work, for sure. Are there times during your filmmaking journey where you were just frustrated with God? I'm just curious how your faith has interplayed with your experience as a producer. So I did season one of Mark Hamill's Pop Culture Quest with Lionsgate. And, you know, as a filmmaker, you're you're trying to figure out, hey, getting enough projects made to feed your family and, and all of those things and to keep your career going. And so Lionsgate greenlit season two. And they're like, okay, this is great. If I can start to get some consistent business, making a TV show, and then also making a movie. And then we're sort of in the development process on season two. And then Lionsgate pulled the plug and said, we've decided to cancel the platform they were building. And, And so all of the shows got the rug pulled out. It was devastating because we had already ink the deal on season two. Those are tough things. It's hard to, it's hard to get a TV show made. Really challenging because you're like, wow, this is, it's a really great show for kids and families. And, um, but it's the, the nature of the business. And I do question God often. That's for sure. So I'm like, God, what are you doing? It's always the same answer. Be patient. I got to be patient. For me and, and, my, and my faith journey, it has allowed me to be, uh, whether it's in, in lean times or in good times, to just be at peace. And I'm able to sort of ride those storms. And knowing that I'm where I'm supposed to be in good times or bad times, to be at peace when life's not perfect. And the film industry is full of imperfect days. For someone who's working hard to get their first project into production, what kind of advice would you have for them? Just just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I should say, what kind of encouraging <laughs> advice would you have for them? Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> As I look back and I see some of the things that I did early on, I see some of young filmmakers' mistakes, is that maybe they get this idea of a passion project and they're not looking at it through the lens of what does the audience want right now? Mm-hmm. They're looking at it only through the lens of, I just have this story I'm, I love. But it's ultimately, at the end of the day, we make movies to entertain people and inspire people. And so look closely at the project. Make sure that it's something that you believe the world will receive. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes I see. Because I get invited to watch first-time filmmakers' films, and I'm like, oh, it's a nice film, but who's going to watch that? Because ultimately, we're making entertainment, so we have to entertain people. If you could redo the career you've had so far, what would you do differently? I would have really focused more on um, developing stories earlier. That's something that took me 13 years to figure out, because you're, you're focused on the next job? How do I get my next job early in my career? And I wasn't focused on developing content. So that's probably something I'd go back and redo because ultimately at the end of the day, having best-selling books and having, you know, great compelling stories is what moves money. 
to attach and get, get your projects made. When I wrote my manifesto and launched my own company, I had zero projects on my slate. And so I had to start building at that point. Um, fortunately, now I have 20 amazing projects on my slate, but it's taken a, a while to build those up. All my actor friends make a lot more money than I do, so may, maybe I should have worked hard on my acting career. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to that point, there have been some articles recently about the efforts to start a producing guild because producers who have created prominent movies have talked about getting very little money out of those movies. And they've brought up the idea of how can we make a living as producers if we don't have any back-end protection for the salaries that we're supposed to be making? Has that been your experience? Yeah, for sure. While I may make a little bit of money on the movie we sold to Netflix down the road, there's typically not a lot of back-end on projects. It is a tough one because every other union or every other role in the film industry gets residuals and things like that, DGA, WGA, actors, SAG. And so, yes, producers for sure get left out a bit. At the end of your life, what kind of legacy would you like to leave behind? We have some friends. They're from Australia. They watched Blue Miracle and they said, now that's a film that God's going to be showing in heaven. If I can create content that has that type of thought process behind it, that God would actually be proud of those films. I, I And I hadn't thought about it from that perspective before. When they said it, it was a moving, you know, thought. I'm like, oh my goodness, yeah. You know, is, is God proud of the films I'm making? I'd love to have that on my tombstone. God is proud of you. Hope my kids are able to, in the midst of this crazy journey, come out of this experience and go, you know what? I did we didn't have a normal childhood because we traveled the world and and we you know did did schooling out of hotel rooms and but I but I hope that they're able to look back and say that we got to experience life, although it wasn't the normal life that everybody else has, uh, experience life with their dad in a in a unique way and that dad didn't run off and abandon them over a career. This interview is sponsored by Navigating Hollywood, which encourages and equips entertainment professionals to live relationally and spiritually holistic lives. Navigating Hollywood offers courses for marriage and pre-marriage and the Alpha Hollywood course, which gives media professionals the chance to explore the big life questions in an open and welcoming environment. You can find out more at navigatinghollywood.org. If you use the invitation code podcast, the courses are complimentary. Thank you so much for being my guest, Darren. Alan, it was a true pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for sharing about your filmmaking journey and your life. Be sure to check out Darren's new movie, Blue Miracle, which is available on Netflix. We'll also include a link to his production company where you can explore the other movies he's produced as well. If you work in entertainment, you can check out the courses and other resources available at navigatinghollywood.org. And again, use the word podcast to register for a complimentary course 
course. Please follow us and leave us a review so others can discover this podcast. You can find other shows, transcripts, links, and anything else we talked about and more at navigatinghollywood.org. I look forward to being with you next time. 